difficulty in trying to hold people account to any kind of standard when the alternative in a two-party system is so god-awful. And the Democrats and their allies in the mainstream media certainly are just horrible, just absolutely terrible. We're going to get into an example of that here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. We do that 9 to 11 weeknights. If it doesn't work out for you, catch up with the podcasts at the iHeartRadio channel right there in the app. Just do a search for Closing Argument. You can join us tonight, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin taking your calls and producing the show. This guy, Stephen Miller, who I had not heard of prior to... Uh, his, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember he came out uh, at some point earlier this year and he, he made a big splash because he had this boisterous confrontation with the press uh, on a number of Sunday morning shows where he talked about how the president's powers were not going to be questioned and what have you. And he just sounded like a, a raging propaganda minister. It wasn't particularly impressive. That said, his most recent confrontation uh, with this guy from CNN, uh, I believe the name's Jim Augusta. I don't watch CNN, so you'll have to forgive me for not being terribly familiar with their personalities. Um, but th- I, I caught the audio of it today, and I was extraordinarily impressed with Stephen Miller this time around because he he really kind of manhandled this CNN reporter on the issue of immigration and specifically the the historical context in terms of what immigration law has been throughout the history of the United States and uh, the the he, he kind of kicked around kicked the, the CNN reporter around on this floated notion that the poem that we all know of uh, that's that's uh, associated with the Statue of Liberty uh, give, give me your huddled masses your poor and what have you that that is somehow indicative of what our actual statutory policy ought to be it's uh it, it was it's a fun thing to listen to if you get the chance to to google it Uh, or check it out on YouTube, you should. One of the reactions um, from this encounter between Stephen Miller and a CNN reporter comes to us from Politico, and uh, it's written by a guy named Jeff Greenfield, and he is wringing his hands and rending his robes, all a flutter, all a Twitter, over the, the use by Stephen Miller of the term cosmopolitan, which was used in this exchange with Augusta as a kind of a, uh, a slur, so to speak, you know, you're cosmopolitan, therefore you don't understand um, where where people are coming from. You have a very insulated uh, view from within a bubble of uh, distorted urban life that doesn't recognize the reality out here in the real world. And he had a point in the context, but his use of this term is the subject of this commentary by Greenfield at Politico. It's entitled, catch this, The Ugly History of Stephen Miller's cosmopolitan epithet, <laughs> the ugly history. This is what Greenfield has to say. When, when TV news viewers saw Trump advisor Stephen Miller accuse Jim Acosta of harboring a cosmopolitan bias during Wednesday's news conference, they might have wondered whether he was accusing the CNN White House reporter of an excessive fondness for the cocktail made famous on Sex in the City. It's a term that's seldom heard 
in American political discourse, but to supporters of the Miller-Bannon worldview, it was a cause for celebration. Breitbart, where Steve Bannon resigned before becoming Trump's chief political strategist, trumpeted, trumpeted Miller's evisceration of Acosta and put the term in its headline. So did white nationalist Richard Spencer, who hailed Miller's dust-up with Acosta as a triumph. Now, what you see here by Greenfield uh, at Politico is trying to uh, imply guilt by association, right? Like Because Richard Spencer said that the encounter was a triumph, you know, obvious. And Richard Spencer is a white nationalist. He's the the he coined the term alt right. He's a vile figure because he liked it. It must be evil. That's the implication here. So, continuing at Politico, why does it matter? Because it reflects a central premise of one key element of President Donald Trump's constituency, a premise with a dark past and an unsettling present. So, what is a cosmopolitan? It is cousin to elitist, but with a more sinister undertone. It's a way of branding people or movements that are unmoored to the traditions and beliefs of a nation and identify more with like-minded people regardless of their nationality. In this sense, the revolutionary pamphleteer Thomas Paine might have been an early American cosmopolitan when he declared, the world is my country, all mankind are my brethren, and to do good is my religion. In the eyes of their foes, cosmopolitans tend to cluster in the universities, the arts, and the urban centers, where familiarity with diversity makes for a high comfort level with untraditional ideas and lives. For a nationalist, these are fighting words. Your country is your country, your fellow citizens are your brethren, and your country's traditions, religious and otherwise, should be yours. A nation whose people, especially influential people, develop other ties undermine national strength and must be repudiated. Now, there are, there are a couple of responses that I have to this. First of all, I think that this author Greenfield at Politico is reading way too much into Steve Miller's intent. Um, the idea that he was trying to to uh, I imply some sort of uh, nationalist versus globalist distinction, even though I do believe Steve Miller probably does hold that worldview, the idea that that's what he was implying by cosmopolitan in this context is stretching things quite a bit. The context was Jim Acosta, specifically, Jim Acosta was making the point that the requirement, or it's not even a requirement, I should be accurate in my representation of it here, this new immigration law that's making its way through the Senate, part of, part of what it does is it highly weighs the ability to speak English amongst the criteria that's taken under consideration when immigrants apply for a green card. for per So we're talking about permanent resident residency status amongst legal immigrants. That's the context. And in that context, Acosta floated the notion that the intention of the law was to only have immigrants from Australia and Great Britain. And so Miller's counter to that was uh, how, how, uh, how extremely offensive to assume that anybody who doesn't come from those two countries can't or won't speak English, right? And he pointed out the innumerable immigrants from countries around the world who do speak English and who come here and who are fully capable and willing of either learning the language or speaking the language. And it was in that context that Miller used the term cosmopolitan. And, and it was very clear that his point was, you live in a bubble. You live in, in, a, in a little, you know, uh, 
what do they call those cocktail party bubble where you you see everything through the prism that assumes that anything other than your view is motivated by racial prejudice so the only possible reason why we could have a law that weighs speaking english heavily in criteria that determines who can come in and who does not come in the only possible motivation for that is to keep out mexicans and to keep out brown people that that's the only possible reason why you could come up with that which is an absurd assumption that doesn't bear out in the data of who speaks english right you know ben shapiro was talking about this on his podcast today and he was talking about the fact that there are probably well not even probably there are more english-speaking people in china than there are in Australia and Great Britain combined, just because there's more people in China, right? And the, the percentage, even though it's a minority, the percentage of people who are able to speak English in China is more than the total number of English-speaking people in Australia and Great Britain, right? So this idea that you, you're you not going to have any Chinese or Chinese, Chinese immigrants as a result of weighing the ability to speak English uh, in your immigration criteria is pretty absurd. There's some... Uh, foreign-born people who speak English better than native English speakers, right? Because yeah. they've been grammatic trained to speak grammatically correct. Like, you take an average walk down the street, and you'll probably hear some pretty absurd things that people say, especially with new slang that's coming out. What it be, what you do, right? Stuff yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Kanye uh, would would be a great ambassador yes. for for uh, for that point. So, you know, this whole deal that Acosta was bringing up, uh, the, the notion of um, the Statue of Liberty and, and the poem by Emma Lazarus, uh, the new Colossus, this has been the, the cause of much consternation amongst uh, folks on the left. From the Star Tribune, a poem at the Statue of Liberty that is a national symbol for the country's embrace of immigrants became the topic of a rancorous exchange Wednesday at a White House news conference to announce President Donald Trump's push for immigration reform. Senior White House aide Stephen Miller told reporters the poem written by Emma Lazarus about the huddled masses is not part of the original Statue of Liberty. Miller said the statue is a symbol of American liberty lighting the world and suggested it had little to do with immigrants. Miller's comment prompted ridicule on social media and angry responses from immigrant rights activists. Miller was responding to a question from CNN reporter Jim Acosta asking if the Trump administration's new merit-based green card proposal was keeping with U.S. tradition. The reporter read the line of the Lazarus sonnet, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. The poem you're referring to was added later, Miller said. It was not actually part of the original Statue of Liberty. Now, on this point that they're choosing to focus on here at the uh, Associated Press reprinted in Star Tribune, I don't. This this is not the most interesting part of the exchange. They're focusing on this because this is the weak the weak link in Miller's narrative. You know, he he tried to make this 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 distinction of when the poem was attached to the statue and how that that was somehow relevant to whether or not it ought to be considered. All of that was beside the point. What they don't get into here because it's inconvenient to the political narrative that they would seek to advance is the point that Miller was making regarding the the legal implications or lack thereof of that poem you know he got into a back and forth with Acosta, basically asking him at what point in american history have we just thrown open our borders and had the huddled masses from everywhere in the country flood into the to the united states at what point has that ever happened and he asked him specifically 
Jim Acosta, what is the number of immigrants that we should allow in on a year-to-year basis that would fulfill the sentiment of this poem that you think ought to be the basis of our of our statute and the basis of our policy? And at what point in American history has that ever been the case? So, you know, he's, he's making the point that what, what Acosta is evoking is wholly irrelevant to the question of what immigration policy ought to be. That, of course, doesn't get reported at the Star Tribune. That, of course, doesn't get reported in the AP, right? Well, the big conflict with immigration now, and I think we've touched on it before, is that you can have open borders. Like, I think that the concept of open borders exceeds our sovereignty and just is a concept that we need to hold as inherently free people. But you can't have open borders and a welfare state. You have to pick one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with that. Um I mean, I think it's 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 tough because, like we've talked about in the program before, immigration is not a issue. It's the intersection yeah. of a variety of issues, and so it's not it's not something that you can speak about or speak to simplistically without being inaccurate or oversimplifying things or what have you. But but generally speaking, you know, do I agree with every jot and tittle of the the proposal that's been put out? No, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is rather arbitrary, although I will say between last night when me and Neil Lynch were, were uh, tearing it apart and today when I actually heard more about what it actually does, there's more value in there than I originally thought uh, beca- because much of what they're trying to get at is that welfare state uh, side of the equation where they're saying, look, if you're going to come here, we want you to be somebody who's not going to end up being a drag on the system. We want you to be somebody who's going to be able to contribute value to the economy. And that's completely legitimate. The, but, but the idea that's being floated on the left, which is utterly absurd, is that any sort of restriction whatsoever is inherently motivated, or even that expectation that you must be able to provide some sort of value to society and be an, an affirmation of our culture rather than uh, interjecting your own culture that's counter to our traditions and our beliefs, that that's somehow inherently uh, xenophobic or racist or whatever the case may be. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. You have to wonder whether or not this next story was meant to spite Betsy Hodges and her supporters in Minneapolis. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. To join us from the Star Tribune, Janae Harto was named the 2017 Woman Law Enforcement Executive of the Year by her peers across the country on Thursday, just two weeks after she resigned as Minneapolis Police Chief. Harto who was ousted last month amid controversy over the police shooting of Justine Damon, received the award at the annual conference of National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. Chief Janae Harto has made a real difference for the police officers and citizens of Minneapolis and those she has touched through her various teaching, mentoring, and speaking engagements, uh, said the organization's officials in a statement announcing the award. The association, made up of top female police officers from around the U.S., said that Harto exemplifies their core values of leading change, leading people, building coalitions, driving results, and building the next generation of women law enforcement executives. 
It also acknowledged her handling of the 4th Precinct occupation, during which she skillfully balanced the community and protesters' concerns while navigating the political challenges and recognized her efforts to advance women in policing. So the question is, is this a decision, and it doesn't go into it here, is this a decision that this organization, the National Association for uh, of Women Law Enforcement Executives, did they make this decision before or after she got she resigned? <laughs> that, that would be really interesting to know. And what was the motivation? Was it genuinely a sincere acknowledgement of all the, the wonderful things that Janae Harto has done, or was it a little bit of stick of the thumb uh, at a mayor who they perceived to be uh, an example of what none of them want to actually deal with uh, in the course of their own law enforcement careers. I would be unsurprised to learn that it was the latter. Also from the Star Tribune, a Blue Earth County man with a history of drunken driving convictions is facing yet another charge, this time for allegedly driving drunk while on his riding lawnmower. This is apparently a thing that can happen to you. Annoyed that a police car was following him on July 20th as he drove his lawnmower down the street in the city of Madison Lake, Thomas Groth hit the brakes and confronted the officer. Yeah, nothing about that. There, there was a series of bad decisions being made by this gentleman, uh, quite apparently. Groth, 60, wound up charged with drunken driving after blowing a 0.283 on his blood alcohol test. More than three times the legal limit. He was following me, Groth said in an interview Thursday, referring to the officer. When I stopped at a stop sign, I got off to see what he wanted. Groth said he had been mowing around the st a storage unit when he ran low on gas. After gassing up his mower, he was heading back to the property when he was stopped at about 7.45 p.m. So, I mean, I guess if he was drunk, it makes a certain amount of sense. Like, there might have been some sort of uh, quasi-rational justification for him using the lawnmower as opposed to getting into his car, which would have been a poor idea. But, I mean, the the other possibility here is maybe, you know, wait until you're done mowing the lawn, sit on your porch, kick back a few, rather than getting yourself into this predicament. This guy sounds like he's living the American dream, just getting he, drunk and mowing lawns. He really, really does. I mean, you, you got to love it. Good times. Speaking of the American dream, there's a new movie coming out. It's uh, yet another remake of a classic film. This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter. I believe. No, this is USA Today. Fans of Eli Roth, Bruce Willis, and the 1974 action thriller Death Wish uh, have, uh, or movies that have lots of guns will likely be thrilled by a new trailer. Many internet commentators, however, are not. The trailer for Roth's Death Wish remake arrived Thursday featuring Willis playing Dr. Paul Kersey, a Chicago surgeon-turned-vigilante who, after criminals assault his wife and daughter, decides to brutally hunt them down himself. While some fans celebrated the trailer's release, many Twitter commentators condemned the violence of the trailer, calling its tone a poor fit for America's fraught political climate. Fail or not, I can't think of a more tone-deaf idea in this political social environment than white filmmakers remaking Death Wish, tweeted Forbes critic Scott Mendelson. Pretty sure the NRA just found their next ad, <laughs> wrote one Twitter user with another calling the trailer a grim, grave, corrosive urban horror picture. Now, you know, we talked with uh, our in-studio guest last night, Neil Lynch, about th this tendency of folks to really 
infuse their politics into their consumption of media. And there, there's something, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something truly perverse about this. That is, And by, by perverse, I mean it's deviant. It's not normal. It's not healthy. It's not something that normal people do. I saw this trailer earlier today for Death Wish. Now, does it look like it's going to be an Oscar winner? No. Does it look like it's going to be Bruce Willis's best work? Probably not. It does, however, look like it's going to be exactly what it's trying to be, which is an action movie, you know, in the revenge genre that uh, you know gets you gets you kind of like John Wick, you know, gets you riled up with uh, crimes against the protagonist for which he seeks justice, for which he seeks vengeance. And as I watched it, at no point, at no point did it strike me as being in any way motivated or relevant to any ongoing conversation about race or racial roles or gender roles or racism or anything along those lines. I wasn't thinking on those terms. And I also wasn't thinking in terms of politics. I wasn't thinking about, you know, is, what does this do for Republicans? What does this do for Democrats? What does this say about our society? It's not that kind of movie. It's not a, it's not a piece of art in the sense of having something important to say about our lives. It's just a movie. It's just a raucous, visceral action movie. And that's all it ought to be perceived as. The fact that it triggered these movie critics and, and has triggered the left, and they're all concerned about, you know, a white male with a gun going out and, and shooting brown people, which incidentally is not what the trailer's about, right? Like in the trailer, one of the people who Willis's character helps is a young black kid who has been who's been assaulted and who tells him yeah i was attacked by this guy who threatens kids when he, when i when they go to school and i'm not able to go to school because of this this uh drug dealer that's in my community so what's the issue there you know i imagine it probably for for the left it has something to do with the fact of like the white savior or the white hero or whatever the case may be well and it just ignores past films or tv shows like breaking bad or the Boondock Saints, which everyone is so quick to uh, praise. I mean, I'm sure that this Death Wish movie is not on the same level, as you say. It's just no. kind of meant to be an action movie. But the same theme has played out in other movies that have gone unnoticed. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, was John Wick part of this phenomenon? You know, that, that was a relatively recent film, and you know, it had a sequel. Let's go to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to Closing Argument. Yes, it's interesting you brought this up because I just today learned of it. I don't know if it was how well uh, kept it was. that they're, 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 I didn't even realize they were redoing this movie. But I do remember, and if people can remember back, the original movie, I believe, took place in New York. And one thing I remember is crime in New York was out of control in the right. 70s. And you right. remember Giuliani came in there. And I think part of the thing there was, here's a guy who had something very bad to him. He didn't feel there was any remedy within the law. And Correct. I'm not advocating vigilanteism. Correct. But right. he basically took the law into his own hands. And I don't know as far as people and their consumption of media uh, themselves interjecting it, but Hollywood for years and years have political threads wound into their movies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty evident, even in some of the children's 
movies, you can see the climate uh, indoctrination yeah, 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 and so right, forth yeah. going on. Yeah, so why shouldn't there be a, a film that appeals to, you know, a, a more conservative view of the world? Not to say that vigilantism is conservative, but I think what it does exemplify, you know, if we're going to bring our politics into our analysis of a movie like Death Wish, if it if it if it exemplifies anything, it's what we talked about earlier, right? Which is this passive tyranny. When government fails to do its job, when government fails to administer justice, then all you're left with is either being victimized or turning to some form of vigilantism. And we've seen that play out, you know, with, with the with the anti-FA crowds and what have you, where you've got these the, these sort of militant Trump supporters who basically say, we're going to protect ourselves by any means necessary. I don't think they'll dare tread. Maybe they'll try to remake some of the uh, Clint Eastwood Dirty Herring movies, but there's a line in one of his movies where he says, Basically, he says there's nothing wrong with shooting people as long as the right people get shot. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people that feel that way with all the criminals and the, the dangerous people out there. Yeah. Appreciate your call as always, Mike. Thanks for listening to the program. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. I hate to steal a topic from the morning show, but I keep hearing that promo, and I'm going to steal a topic from the morning show. You know, this, this, this idea that, and, and I've heard it discussed before because uh, John Justice and I uh, both listen to similar podcasts uh, regarding uh, movies and, and the film industry. And this is something that has been an ongoing question of, you know, has the advent of Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, been been a detriment to the film industry and the film business and it's it's a pretty absurd argument and the reason why it's worth discussing is because it's indicative of the same argument that is utilized by the left in every other aspect or or, or function of the economy closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 11 30 1035 fm 651-989-5855 the number to join us Rotten Tomatoes, in case you're somehow not aware, is a site which aggregates movie reviews and gives gives a, a movie a percentage score out of 100%. And what, what it's telling you is that let's say, you know, a movie gets a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. What that means is that 75% of the critics who reviewed that movie gave it a favorable review. That means that they recommended that you go see it. So 75% of critics thought it was worth watching. That's all it tells you. And so what people, this has become a a highly coveted score. Getting a high score on Rotten Tomatoes is something that generally indicates that you're likely to enjoy the film. And so, you know, what, what folks are complaining about, what studios are complaining about is that their films are being undercut, that they don't even get a chance to get out there and be seen and be judged on their merits because they get low Rotten Tomato scores. Well, you can tell how bad a movie is going to be by how much they advertise for it. Right. <laughs> because they want to get people in the studio before they start seeing these reviews. Yep. But, like, the movie industry is pretty terrible. I haven't been to the movies in over two years. I was thinking about it the other day. It's been two years since I've bothered to see a movie in theaters, and I've watched very few new movies since then even. Hmm. 
I, I mean, granted, I'm not a movie guy. I generally don't have time, the time or patience right. to watch a movie, but I recognize that it's still like, the, I recognize the art of it, you know, and that it's worth watching. The the interesting thing about where the entertainment industry generally has gotten to is that now that we have streaming, now that we have Netflix, I mean, I've got a bunch of uh, DVDs and I got a box full of VHSs somewhere in my house and what have you. It used to be that if you wanted to watch something, you know, you kind of, you kind of had to roll the dice and take a chance on renting a video or renting a disc or whatever the case may be. Now you have a, the, a whole library of film, television, entertainment at your fingertips at your phone on your television on your computer there's so much stuff out there that you can afford as a consumer to be far more discerning than you ever were in the past well it's kind of funny like we talk about how like people who have access to more information make better decisions but it seems like even though we have more information on movies the movies have gotten worse <laughs> That's a fair point. Or or maybe our expectations have gotten more refined. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe we be. maybe we expect more. And and I, I think there's that's there's definitely truth to that because a lot of the the quality entertainment, the the good narratives, the satisfying uh, stories are now coming out of television more so than they are out of films. You know, you look at, at the HBO shows, you know, Westworld, Game of Thrones, look at something like Breaking Bad. Uh, you know the, these shows that have the these loyal followings, it's it's because they develop characters and they have provocative narratives and what have you, and and it when you when you see something good, it reduces your tolerance for something that's not good. That's true, but it's also taking advantage of the medium too. Like, I hear a thirty second radio commercial and like you know when that's good. Like you can still just because it's only thirty seconds long doesn't mean you can't use it effectively. Interesting. So like. Somebody with an hour and a half to two hours to make a movie should be able to use that effectively. <laughs> I see what you're saying. <laughs> they have a broader canvas with which to yes. work. Yeah, I got you. Let's go to Jeremy and Anoka. Welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Uh, just a little bit about the movie stuff. I know personally there's just far more uh, media available as far as television and YouTube and Netflix uh, to take up my, I don't know, uh, Green time, I guess you yeah. want to call it. Yeah. And it's a lot cheaper than going to the movies. And if I want to sit down with my family or even by myself, it, it's a lot easier to just do it at home. Right. Uh, the, the other thing about the about the a Death Wish movie, I I feel like, man, I don't know that it it, it just seems, that seems ridiculous about the, uh, the 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 guy talking about the content and this and that. I, I think that. Hollywood is running out of ideas to do remakes, and they're taking chances. Um, so many movies, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago were made that were groundbreaking that we won't see those remakes. Like, we'll never see a remake of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. You know, it, it just won't happen because the, the subject matter is it's already dealt with. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, I don't think we'll ever see a remake of... Uh, like Jeremiah Johnson, you know what I mean? <laughs> They'll never have anything like that because it would just be far too offensive to a, a segment of the population. It, there's, it, it feels like Hollywood is kind of um, struggling to find remake ideas. Mm-hmm. And especially like you brought up like Game of Thrones, and, you know, going back years ago to Breaking Bad. And there was just starting about 10 years ago, there was just a glut 
of amazing cable programs that right. come out. Right. And now with Amazon and mm-hmm. Netflix and YouTube, yeah. it's even more to pick from. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't even keep... And, you know, the 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 more developed our lives get, the, the, the more options we have in terms of how to use our time, the more selective you naturally become in terms of what you're going to spend your time doing. That's the thing, you know, for, for me to even think about taking two hours of my day to commit to a, to a movie. I mean, that's, that's huge. Cause you know, with, with as busy as I am, and I'm sure as busy as you are, and most people listening to this program are, it, it's right. not like, it's not like being a teenager or being, you know, it's like, that's, that's a lot of time, two hours out of your day to, to risk on hating the way you spend it, right? Like, which is a really strong possibility with exactly. with the, with with all the things that are out there. And so, you know, having something like Rotten Tomatoes to indicate, hey, there's a decent chance that that, that you're actually going to get something out of this. You know, one film that I definitely do want to get out and see before it's out of IMAX is Dunkirk because I hear it's fantastic. Right. Well, so. and, and then, like I said, there. Well, I haven't weighed in on this, but the Rotten Tomatoes thing, I think it's a useful tool. I use it a lot, like. Um, if I happen to be traveling or there's a restaurant chain that I've never tried, yeah. hey, I'm going to look at the reviews. It's right. just going to happen. Right. And, and I'm going to try to, you know, sift through them a little bit and just see which ones are, you know, someone just didn't like yeah, something exactly. I don't even care yeah. about. Right. But as far as Rotten Tomatoes get a baseline reading of something, you know, then, yeah. yeah. If it's got a high rating, then I'm going to check it out or I'd be more likely right. to check right. it out. Right. Appreciate the call, Jeremy. Appreciate you listening yep. to the program. Let's go to Vic in St. Francis. Your thoughts, hey. sir. Hey, guys. Uh, enjoy the show. Um, I just had a, basically a one-sentence thing. My personal opinion of, with uh, why movies are so bad now is it's they're running out of ideas, and, you know, now they are keep going off into Star Wars. And they just, it, it, all, with all the superhero movies, they don't have any new ideas. And I think essentially what's been happening is it's the new form of clickbait another form of clickbait you know hey look at all these action scenes oh that happens to be all the action scenes just crammed up into one minute you saw all the best parts in the uh in the trailer that's Mm -hmm. basically what i think has happened thank you for taking my call yeah anytime yeah i mean i i don't know if i fully agree with that you know and you know i I happen to be a pretty pretty uh, avid Star Wars fan, and I, I there's there's a Marvel film that comes out that I don't see, uh, and I tend to enjoy them. You know, I, th- I went and saw this latest Spider-Man film, and I went into it highly skeptical because it's the third iteration of Spider-Man in like a decade, which is just absurd. But it, it was really good. It was a really good, not just good for what it was, but as a Spider-Man film, a superhero film. But it was a good movie. It had it was an you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the Richard Donner Superman from the from back in the seventies. Because that movie, because they were limited in terms of what they could do with special effects, it focused on the character and it focused on the story of who this guy is and what motivates him and why he's doing the things that he's doing. The, this the by time this I don't even know how many Spider Man films there have been now, something like six. I think this was the sixth one that's come out in like 10 years. At this point, you're not going to hook people in with better special effects or more action or bigger explosions. In order to get people to come back to the theater, you actually have to 
create a compelling character and tell an interesting story. And that's what they did with this film. So, you know, are there new ideas coming out of Hollywood? Probably not, but there doesn't have to be. There's a reason why, you know, the theaters have the same shows. You know, you go down to, to the Ordway in Minneapolis and the, their, their calendar of productions, more than half of them are, are things that you've probably seen before. The reason you go is to see the new production, the new presentation, the new representation of something that you're familiar with so that you can enjoy the production. I think there's value in that. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Got a story to share with you here. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it's about because it's the experience of discovery as we move through it is uh, quite essential to understanding just how absurd it is. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. This comes to us from the Chicago Tribune. The police report would claim it all kicked off at 7.38 a.m., but Bob Hart later thought it had to be earlier. His 7.20 a.m. alarm had just yanked him awake. He got up to get his kids, a boy in seventh grade and a girl in kindergarten, ready for school. Then he heard, like a starter's pistol setting everything into motion, the first pounding on the front door of his home in Leewood, Kansas, a bedroom suburb south of Kansas City. It was thunderous. It didn't stop. Should I get up? Bob thought. Should I not? Sounded like the house was coming down, he would later recall. Wearing only gym shorts... The stocky 51-year-old left his wife in bed and shuffled downstairs. The solid front door had a small window carved at eye level, one foot square. As he approached, Hart, Hart saw the porch was clogged with police officers. Immediately after opening the door, seven members of the Johnson County Sheriff's Office pressed into the house, brandishing guns and a battering ram. Bob found himself flat on the floor, hands behind his head, his eyes locked on the boots of the cop standing over him with an AR-15 assault rifle. Are there kids? The officers were yelling. Where are the kids? And I'm laying there staring at this guy's boots, fearing for my kids' lives, trying to tell them where my children are, Hart recalled later in a deposition on July 9th, 2015. They are sending these guys with their guns drawn, running upstairs to bust into my children's house bedroom, wake them out of bed. Hart's wife, Addie, bolted downstairs with the children. The Hart's son put his hands up when he saw the guns. The family of four were eventually placed on a couch as police continued to search the property. The officers would only say they were searching for narcotics. Addie had a thought. It's because of the hydroponic garden she told her husband they were looking uh, for pot. No way, Hart said, correctly reasoning marijuana wasn't a narcotic. And all this for pot? But after two hours of fruitless search, the officers showed the hearts a warrant. Indeed, the hunt was for marijuana. Addie and Bob were flabbergasted. All this for pot? You take the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all the rights you expect to have when they come in like that, the only right you have is not to get shot if you cooperate, Hart told the Washington Post this week. They open that door, your life is on the line. The April 20th, 2012 raid would not uh, furnish the sheriff's department with the desired arrest and publicity, but it would cause considerable embarrassment. Not only were the Hart's upstanding citizens with clean records, they were also both former Central Intelligence Agency officers, and they were not weed growers. Rather, the quick trigger suspicion of law enforcement had snagged on, it would later turn out, 
tea leaves and a struggling tomato plant. The Hearts would eventually file a federal lawsuit against the county, city, and officers involved. And although the federal judge later threw out their claim, this week a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit ruled that the family could move forward in court. The decision has larger implications for Fourth Amendment litigation and legislation targeting badly behaving police officers. Now, the reason why I bring this story to your attention is to to ask the question, because this guy Hart... It's one thing to read a story like this or to hear a story like this. You really have to put yourself in the position of being this guy, right? Like, imagine it's you. Imagine it's your house. Imagine it's your kids. There's a knock at the door. You answer it, knowing that the police are on the other side. They come charging into your house with their guns drawn, pointed at your family, searching the house for you know not what, for for reasons that you're unaware of. And they go through all this rigmarole during which I mean, you, your your family's being traumatized. You don't you think the the kindergartner involved in this situation isn't irrevocably impacted by this experience? Of course she is. And then you find out the reason is pot, marijuana. Now going back to our justification, our rationale, our purpose of government, the role of government in society, properly, morally, objectively, what it is that government is supposed to do. Government is supposed to protect our individual rights. What does that mean? It means that it's supposed to secure us from the initiation of force from other people. So, you know, it's supposed to to keep you from being harmed, from being from ensuring your life, ensuring your liberty, and ensuring your capacity to act upon your own judgment so that you're not you're not kidnapped, you're not stolen from, you're not punched in the face, you're not shot, you're not killed. You know, things like that. What let's say they were growing pot in their basement. How would that justify drawing guns? Why is this the status quo? Why do we care so much about the use of of drugs that were willing to endure these types of scenarios, even in the case where they were the the criminals that these officers were looking for, would it have been justified to do what they did? I think it's a question worth asking, and I think we're at a point in in history where we're ready to have the conversation. There was an article I saw; uh, it was somewhere in the mix earlier this week that uh, we're at a point now where very a very small percentage of people nationwide still believe that marijuana should be illegal. So, you know, maybe the time has come. Maybe it's maybe the time is now to take a serious look at the drug war and whether or not it's it's worth maintaining, uh, whether or not the resources put into it. Because, you know, a lot of the complaints about, you know, crime we talked in our regard of death wish, uh, the, our consideration of death wish, you know, it evokes memories of the way New York City used to be when the original came out. And how that was sort of a, a, a artistic answer to or fantasy arising out of the status quo at that time. We've got crime problems now, too. Real crimes, like crimes where people get hurt, crimes where people are truly assaulted, where they're truly harmed. And, you know, we just had a story uh, earlier this week, I don't think we got to it on the program, where a, a, a guy who had been deported something like 20 times and got back into the country and was uh, a known felon was released rather than being turned over to ICE. I think this happened in Portland, Oregon. 
was released instead of being turned over to ICE and then went on to sexually assault two women, right? Now, we, we don't have the resources, apparently, to keep somebody like that off the street, but we're going to send somebody to prison for 20, 30, 40 years because they were selling a plant to somebody who wanted to use it. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And increasingly, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to other Americans as well. I only wish that the, the, this tendency towards libertarianism in the realm of uh, drugs, because often, you know, the counter you'll hear to this is, well, you know, we've got more important things to think about. We've got more important things to deal with than drug legalization. And I agree, we absolutely do. I just wish we would deal with those things in the same way that we probably ought to deal with the drug war. Freedom, baby. It works. We should be for it. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument heard 9 to 11 weeknights. We'll be here tomorrow. Stick with us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.